We're getting to the time of year where um, we tend to spend more time outside. And uh, when you do work outside, you get dusty and dirty. And sometimes I think there's this feeling in those moments that uh, you don't want to mess up the rest of the house. So maybe you have to do the, the sort of the pre-wash in the laundry sink or something like that. Um, or sometimes you think, well, I'm just not even going to go in the house. I'm just going to spray down with a hose outside. Like I'm not fit to enter the house. The interesting thing about this passage is that God is calling the people of Israel in chapter 14 in the conclusion of what started at the end of chapter 11 to repentance. And sometimes what we think repentance looks like is we're going to do the initial rinse outside and then maybe we're fit to come to the laundry sink and then maybe after that then we're clean enough to come to the bathroom sink and wash our hands and not ruin the nice towels. But the reality is, God is not waiting for us to partially clean up our act, and then we can come before him and find the forgiveness that he offers through repentance. God is not saying, well, if you just take this number of steps toward me, then you're fit to come in my presence, and then I'm going to do the work that I need to do. You and I need God from the very beginning, right? God invites and welcomes us no matter what is going on in our lives to come directly to him with the sin, with the difficulty, with the need. Instead of thinking, well, if I do this, then I'm ready to come before you. Because the reality is, if we think I have to do this before I can come before God, we're likely to never get there. Because we do a little bit, And then we're like, oh, yeah, here's this other thing I got to go do. And we get dusty and dirty again. And then we're, again, not fit, we think, to come before God's presence. Or something else happens unexpectedly and we just say, well, now here's the reason I've come up with, with why I can't come before God. God doesn't want you to clean up your act and then come to him. He wants to come to you to come to him and then he cleans up what's wrong with you. As we come to the end of Hosea, we see this final admonition to repent. And the point of it is to repent to find God's mercy. But we don't repent with the goal of finding God's mercy. The repentance, God's mercy is there already. We sort of find it. We come to him, we receive it. Hosea calls the people of Israel to repent with both words and actions. They need to recognize the problem, first of all. Return to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. You need to go back to God. This is not, for those who are God's people, a one-time act. There is a moment at which this process begins, but this has to be an ongoing reality in our lives. I lied. I go before God and ask his forgiveness and deal with it with people around me. I stole, I go before God, I ask his forgiveness, I seek from the people around me. I coveted, I lusted, I was angry without cause, whatever it is, I need to go back before God. I don't say, well, you know, I did that a long time ago, so now I'm good. 
Um, it's kind of like the attitude of a little kid. Did you wash your hands? Yeah, I did it this morning. Well, what have you done since this morning, right? This has to be an ongoing process. It starts at the point at which we find salvation, but it should keep going throughout all our lives. First John makes it clear that if we say we have no sin, we're liars. We're not supposed to love and walk in sin, and here's all the reasons why. But when we confess our sin and come before God, then he's faithful to cleanse us of it. You and I need to go back to God. We need to recognize that sin is the thing that causes us all the trouble in life. And so just as God dealt with it at the point of salvation, he continues to deal with it at every moment afterward. It is not something that God dealt with it at salvation. Now it's on you. You have to deal with it. It's God dealt with it at the point of salvation, and God continues to deal with it, and you and I come before him. There is to be a response to the knowledge that sin is the problem and God is the solution, but that response is not in and of itself any kind of a work or something that we take credit for, either at the moment when we first trust in Christ or at any moment afterward. God already knows your heart, but he still calls us to come and speak to him. Think about in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. God says, where are you? Did God lose track of where they were? He didn't have the thing turned on on his iPhone to know where they were at? No. God knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they had done. His question was to give them an opportunity to admit what was wrong, which they failed to do. They blamed each other instead. But God already knows your heart and my heart when we sin. What God wants us to do is to acknowledge that sin. Romans 10 uh, talks about this in the context of salvation. If we uh, confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved from our sin. Does God need us to say the words to give us the salvation? Not technically, no, but he still calls us to do it. Like, this is the process that I've said I want you to go through as you come before me and find salvation. There needs to be an asking of him to take away our sin. Again, this is not us coming in repentance and saying, I've gotten my hands 80% clean, but I can't deal with the last 20%, so now it's your turn job to pick up the slack and deal with it. This is me saying, I couldn't do anything to clean up my life. God, I need you to do all of it. And this is actually a desire for God to actually take away the sin. Sometimes instead of wanting God to take away the sin, we want God to take away the consequences of the sin. I did this and now I, can't, I don't get along with this person because of this thing I did against them. So make it so that we are getting along, but I'm going to continue to do whatever it is that's destroying the relationship. Or I did this thing and now I got fired from my job. I want you to give me back my job, but the hard attitudes that led me to do the thing that got me fired from my job that were wrong, I don't want to deal with those. Whatever it is that, that is the sin when we come to God and we say, take away the iniquity, we're not saying take away the consequences of the iniquity. 
We're saying actually take away the sin and ultimately take away my desire to do the sin and my inclination toward that sin and eventually take away all of my sinfulness when we stand in God's presence. We cannot love the sin and keep doing it and say, honestly, I want your grace. Because it says, receive us graciously. But if I come to God and I say, hey, I want you to help me. I got myself into a little bit of a situation here. The next day, the next hour, the next week, exact same thing over again. God welcomes us to come back to him for his help. And he doesn't condemn us if we need wisdom and help and all those sorts of things. But at the same time, we can't keep walking in the sin and act like God's happy about that. It's this biblical tension, right? You cannot love the sin and live in sin and be okay with the sin and call yourself a follower of God. But to the extent that you keep turning back to the sin, you have to keep taking it to God and he will forgive you. Both things are true. What's the goal? The goal is that you will worship and praise God. It says that we may present the fruit of our lips. That we may praise you. It's not deal with my sin so that I can go back to doing my sin so that then I can ask you again about it. That shouldn't be the intent of our hearts, although that's often how things can go. The goal is, God, I want you to deliver me from this sin and help me with this sin so that I can praise you for the sort of God that you are who forgives sin and helps it and, and deals with it and is faithful. So recognize the problem. Speak words of repentance. He says, take words with you and return to the Lord. God doesn't need the words to know what's going on, but God says he's inviting us. He's given us an opportunity to come to him and to deal with whatever it is. And then follow through with your actions. Like the Israelites, we have to purpose that we're not going to go back to our own schemes to get rid of the trouble that our sin has brought upon us. And that sequence of events is important. Why were the Israelites where they were? They worshipped idols, so God let the nations around them have victory over them, so then they turned to the nations and said, I want you to protect me from this other nation. But the reason the other nation was attacking was because of their idolatry. So if we come to God and we say, God, I... was angry because I was angry I said this thing to this person and now things are not good between me and that person and so my solution was to try to earn their uh, friendship back by buying them their favorite candy or picking up extra part of their workload at work or something else and that didn't work Well, the next time that you sin in that way, are you going to go back to your scheme of trying to fix the problem on your own? Or are you going to say, I can't fix the problem on my own. God has to fix the problem, and there's his way of dealing with it, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to that person. I'm going to ask forgiveness. I'm not going to try to bribe the person to like me without actually dealing with the thing that I did against them. 
What was Israel's problem? They kept going to Assyria for help, and they kept going to Egypt for help. And God said, don't go to Assyria for help, don't go to Egypt for help. So the question for us is, what is it that we keep turning back to to try to fix problems that our sin has led to? And we turn to that thing because it's easier than turning to God. Because if we come to God, we know we're going to have to actually deal with the sin, and we can't keep loving the sin, and we can't keep trying to fix the consequences of the sin our own way. Because God freely forgives, and God restores, and God cleanses, But God also says, but you have to give this up. And God also says, you have to stop trusting in yourself. And we feel like that's too much. Or, the root cause, not just the going to other people for help instead of God, but the root cause, we will not say again our God to the work of our hands. So really, it's not always just what schemes are you coming up with to deal with the consequences of your sin. It's what sin are you loving that's leading to those consequences in the first place. For the Israelites, it was something that they had made all throughout this book. The calf, the idol, the statue, the whatever we want to call it. They had said, we are going to make a thing and the thing that we have made We will use that to worship God after our own fashion, in our own way, according to our own plans. What are we worshiping instead of God? Or how are we worshiping God in the wrong way that we don't want to give up, potentially? Sometimes people... Um, there's all sorts of things that we can take credit for there's all sorts of things that we can demonstrate pride in there's all sorts of things that we can say this is a reason to trust myself instead of to trust in God so um Yesterday uh, in the afternoon, we're trying to put a garden in, and there was this shrub, kind of a tree, honestly, that was right in the middle of where we were trying to put that in. So I cut all the limbs off of it, and then I tried to work on getting rid of the stump, and that's a big job. So I got to try out this axe that I had picked up that I hadn't had a chance to try out before, and I got done with it. And I had this big chunk of the stump. It's still the other half still there. i got to deal with that later. But I got the big chunk of the stump. And it's easy in a moment like that to be pretty proud of yourself. Hey, look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished. Where did the money come from for me to buy the axe? Where did the strength come from for me to be able to swing the axe? And where did the tree come from that I needed to chop up with the axe? All of those things came from God. So to the extent that I look at myself and I say, I should be pretty proud of myself. Look at me. God is the one who deserves credit, not me. So if I look at something that I have made or something that I have done or something that I have accomplished 
and I say, that's the thing that I'm going to set my hope on. You say, a tree stump's a silly thing to worship or to be proud about. Look at the trajectory of the Old Testament. What did they do? They chopped down a tree, they burned half of it to cook supper, and the other half they dressed up in gold and silver, and they said, this is our God. And we laugh at them. They're like, that's so dumb. How could you do that? But you and I constantly find ways to love things and people and concepts and situations instead of loving God. And genuine repentance involves increasingly realizing the foolishness of anything in the place of God and more readily and more fervently and more regularly turning away from that. purposing that we're not going to go back to our way of fixing the consequences of our sin, purpose that we're not going to go back to the sin that led to those consequences in the first place, but recognizing in humility that our resolve is not enough and that ultimately the only thing that we can do is cast ourselves on God's mercy because, as he says at the end of verse 3, in you the orphan finds mercy. Because the irony is there can be a kind of pride in repentance that goes back to the same sort of problems that led us to the mess in the first place in which we say something like this. God, I'm coming back to you. And the fact that I'm coming back to you shows that I am doing right. And the fact that I'm doing right is something in which I can be pleased because you are pleased and and in some way it kind of like fixes my relationship with you. The last phrase of verse 3 points this out. In you the orphan finds mercy. What's true about orphans? Lots of money, super well off. I mean, we're not talking about fictional characters. You have this huge inheritance and life is amazing. You don't have your parents, but at least you're rich, right? We're not talking about that. The orphan in the Old Testament was someone who didn't have parents, who was basically living on the kindness of if God's people remember to do it, and as we've seen in the Minor Prophets, a lot of times they weren't, someone who was picking up grain in the field and the dropped fruit off the fruit trees and whatever else in order to survive. The orphan is not someone who says, look at me, I am an orphan. The orphan is someone who says, I need help. Israel's attitude throughout the book of Hosea has been pride. We can do what we want. We can take credit for all that God has given us and attribute it to idols. We can avoid the consequences of that idolatry because we are who we are. And God is saying instead, you need to have the attitude like the orphan who says, I've got nothing and nobody and I need help. And when we have that attitude of humility, recognizing we really need God, we find mercy. So when you and I sin, 
What's our view of ourselves? Oh, I messed up again a little bit. But you know, everybody messes up. Or the sort of pride that sort of overly laments the sin. I can't believe I did that again. Well, why can't you believe that? Well, because that's not who I am. Yeah, it is. And then so we can turn even that moment of repentance again into an opportunity for pride because we say, well, I can't believe that I would do that thing again. Before God, you know that you are capable of much worse than that thing that you just did. So you need to both acknowledge that whether it's a big sin or a little sin, it's a sin that needs to be dealt with with God. Go to him for help. Not do it in a way that says, you know, sort of a, an exaggerated, like, I can't believe I did this again. I'm beating myself up over it. All that's Acknowledge honestly that you sinned. Go to God for help. Realize there are no little problems or big problems. All of them need to go to God. And think about what is your view of God. Because this is really important too. If your attitude toward God and your concept of God is that God is the supervisor who's waiting for you to mess up so he can write you up for poor poor performance, or the neighbor who's watching over the fence to see you do something that violates the HOA so that you can get you in trouble, or some other person that has some problem with you that's just out to get you, if that's your view of God, what are you going to think you have to do? I've got to clean up my life and then come before God, and I'm going to make sure God doesn't see that I've messed up. Here's the foolishness of that. God already knows. So to the extent that we think we have to get the exact right words or fix all of our problems and then come to God and then be like, God, will you forgive me? God already knows and God doesn't want you to try to fix it on your own. So if we see God instead not as that person that's out to get you, but as a loving parent, as a good father, we will come to him when we have trouble. How many of you ever broke a cup? Okay. How many of you ever broke one of your dad's tools? Yeah. If you have a good relationship with your parents, you're going to go to your mom and say, I broke the glass. And her biggest concern is not that the glass is broken. Her biggest concern is, let's take care of this so it doesn't further injure you, right? Let's sweep up the glass and all of that, put your shoes on, all that sort of thing. Why? Because she loves you and cares for you. Does that mean it was okay to break the glass? You should just throw them on the... No. But because of the context of the relationship, there is love and concern for what is going to be good for you. And what is good for you is not to, not to say, I'm going to clean this up and get your hands all cut up and walk through it and get your feet all cut up and all that sort of thing because you were trying to fix it on your own. What you needed to do was go say, hey, this is what happened and I'm sorry and will you help me? Right? If you broke your dad's tool, the solution is not to 
to hide it or let's say you chip the edge off of a chisel or something and so then you go turn on the grinder and then you hurt yourself worse trying to fix the chisel because maybe you saw him do that to get an edge on it and if you had just gone and told him about it then you could have avoided all of that further problem that you created for yourself by trying to fix it on your own and that's what the people of Israel were doing at first they didn't want to admit that they had done anything wrong and then when they recognized there were consequences of what they had done they kept going other places, right? Um, I see this sometimes in my in my eighth grade class. One of them will be like, what's happening on the schedule next week? And one of them, who has no idea, will say, it's this. And then they're all convinced it's this. And I'll be like, no, we actually have class next week on this day. Well, so-and-so, why are you asking other people who don't know and who can't help you to figure out the thing that you really need to know and show up for. And I'm not saying you should have good friends. I'm not saying that all students are dumb. I'm just saying pooled ignorance doesn't help anybody, right? But instead of coming to God, and instead of coming to God's word, so many times we're like, here's this thing that's wrong in my life. All right, let's go ask an unbeliever how I should fix it. They don't know. Sometimes they get things right by accident, right? Like, for example, when it comes to models of counseling, the ones that say, take responsibility for your actions, that's closer to the biblical pattern than the ones that just say, blame your mom because she didn't change your diaper on time, because that's a stupid explanation for why you're being a jerk to your coworkers, right? But my point is to say, this is part of why getting accountability from someone who's struggling with the same sin as you is also not really a wise idea sometimes. Because you're going to be overly sympathetic because you're all struggling with the same thing. And you're probably going to not have the success that you hope to have in it. Here's what I'm trying to say. There has to be repentance. Repentance involves, here's the problem. Here's the words of confession. Here's the actions that show that the confession was actually not just stuff I'm spouting off because I think I can trick God. It's what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees. Hey, we want to be baptized. He said, God wants to see works fitting of repentance. Like, don't just do this because you want to look good before everybody else. Actually follow through on what it is you're saying you think that you need. But all of this is rooted in a proper understanding of the fact that we desperately have to come back to God. Humbly, repeatedly, eagerly. Because if you and I genuinely turn from our sin, we will find God's mercy. God forgives those who repent. Verse 4. He heals those who have wandered far from him. He says, I will heal their apostasy. What's apostasy? Apostasy is different from just sin in general. Sometimes we think of um, 
like everybody's a sinner, right? That's not apostasy. Apostasy is everybody sins, but then I realize that I shouldn't sin, and for a while I stopped sinning, and then I'm like, you know what? I really liked sinning, so I'm going to go back to that. But God here is willing to deal with that. You and I are often ready to give up on people who apostatize in some way or another. Right? We think, well, and sometimes this is a theological reason we jump too quickly to 1 John when we should go to Hebrews. What I mean by that is 1 John 2 says those who went out from us were not of us because they didn't come back. But Hebrews says, there's possible for those who are among God's people and are participating in God's work and all those sorts of things. Why aren't they with us at the moment? And if our, if our response is, well, we know absolutely for sure it's a 1 John 2 situation. We're not going to pursue them. We're not going to pray for them. We're not going to be concerned about them. God went after the people of Israel generation after generation when there's no reasonable expectation of them for God to keep pursuing them. You and I are not God, and we can't save everybody. We can't honestly save anybody. I'm just saying by our efforts, we don't always see a positive result, right? But like God, we should be willing to continue to pursue and plead with the God who can deal with their apostasy that he would heal it. God loves them freely without anger here. My anger has turned away from them. Now again, that is a decision by God in spite of what the people have done, not because of what the people have done. They deserve God's wrath because of their repeated idolatry. And yet God came to a moment when he said, you have persisted in this long enough, so I'm going to take you through a time of discipline. And you've experienced the discipline long enough, so I'm going to now restore you. God didn't have to do any of that, but he did. Or at least we wouldn't expect that God has to do any of that, right? God forgives those who repent. God restores and blesses those who repent. Look at verses 5 through 7. He blesses them with resources and fruitfulness. I will be like the dew. He will blossom like the lily. He'll take root like the cedars of Lebanon. So it's springtime, a lot of things coming up in the yard, right? This is the imagery that Hosea is appealing to. When there is lots of rain, the plants and the trees and the flowers come up. God's blessing on his people as he restores them is the reason for their growth that follows after. Not only does he bless them, but it seems like he blesses those around them. And the them could be those under the leadership of Israel benefit from good rulers. But I think it's not just that. I think it's people who are not part of the nation of Israel have sort of a spillover effect of the blessing that God is giving to them. We see this in verse 6, or rather verse 7. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain. This picture of Israel like the cedars of Lebanon, beauty like the olive tree. That If so, this ties into Genesis 12. God said, I will not only bless Abraham's descendants, but also those associated with Abraham's descendants. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This finds its greatest fulfillment in Christ. But even in God's kindness to his people, the nations around were blessed. 
People are starving because there's famine. God sends Joseph down to Egypt. It's not just the people of Israel and Jacob's family. It's also the Egyptians. It's also the surrounding nations who benefit from God's kindness to his people. God blesses by restoring their reputation. It says his renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. So there is a restoration from being this downtrodden nation that everybody thought they could come in and invade to being one that has again a measure of glory, not in themselves, but because of God's kindness to them. So what does God's mercy look like? Forgiving those who repent, restoring and blessing those who repent, showing his power over idols. Part of God's mercy is showing us that the thing that we loved before was worthless. Idols cannot save. What more have I to do with idols? We already talked about this idea of cutting down half the tree, burning part of it, dressing up the other half of it, and worshiping it. He shows that he's the true God. It is I who answer and look after you. Think about all of the instances in the Bible in which God's people call to him and God answers. What does God answer with? God answered Elijah with fire. God answered Jesus with a voice like thunder. God answered the people when they prayed in Acts 4 with an earthquake and a demonstration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So when we cry out and God answers and we see who he is, it reminds us that God is God and we are not God and we need to have this ongoing dependence on him. And then at the end of verse 8, God is the tree, his people are the branches that bear fruit. I was looking at this huge tree when we were at Greenfield Village on Thursday with Maggie's field trip, and it just was this huge old evergreen tree. I don't think it was a uh, cypress, but it was something in the evergreen family. Just this massive tree. It had a little tiny twig on the end of the branch, and that twig says... Look at me. Obviously, trees don't talk, but by way of illustration, clearly that little branch at the tip of a longer branch at the edge of a huge tree with a trunk like this is not the point of the tree or the substance of the tree or the thing that's holding up the tree. And when it has the little berries or the fruit or the cones at the end of it, the reason for that is not because the branch is just hanging out in the middle of the air without anything supporting it. The reason for it having fruit is because it's connected to the tree that's rooted in the ground. Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. When you're in me, you bear fruit. God's people had to come to the realization that it was not their power that would free them from their sin, that would deal with the consequences of their sin, that would restore them and bless them. It was God and his power. And what they needed was a return to God in order to find this deliverance from idols, this recognition that God is the true God. And then the passage concludes by showing God's wisdom. Part of God's mercy is for us to see that his way is wise. He says here, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. In Proverbs 9, it's wisdom lifts up her voice in the streets. Pay attention. In Matthew and in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear. Here it is. 
Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. God's ways are right. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but pursues after God. It's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. The righteous walk in the ways of the Lord. Transgressors stumble in or over the ways of the Lord. What does this look like practically in our Christian lives? Give credit where credit is due. There was a workshop yesterday. A uh, speaker, uh, Brian Vickers, was talking about what does it look like to humbly lead other people to follow after Jesus, sort of this concept of discipleship. And I thought he illustrated it really well. He said, when you first trust Jesus, the experience and the recognition of the forgiveness that we found at the cross is a really important part of our focus. We say, Jesus has saved me, and we're really excited about that. And yes, we recognize there's things about the Christian life we have to figure out. And yes, we recognize down the road there's heaven. But Jesus and the cross is the focus of what is our attention. He said, and then we tend to go on in our Christian lives, and the, the experience of the cross sort of shrinks a little bit. It recedes into memory a little bit. And we get focused often on, now here's what I'm supposed to do or not do. And then down the road there's heaven. And then he says often we come to this progression where we've even forgotten or not paying attention to the cross. It's even less significant to us. And now we're really focused on here's the things I'm supposed to do and not do. And here's all the ways I'm supposed to serve God. And we get really busy. And all of it is with the view of getting to heaven. But because we're so focused on that, we've forgotten how God saved us in the first place. When Hosea says to them here in verse 1, return to the Lord your God, what does that look like for you and I on a daily basis? It is really easy for us to think of the Christian life as a series of activities or places that we go or like a schedule. The Christian life, though it involves gathering in a place at regular times and there are activities connected with that, the point of the Christian life is not to say we are here in this moment at this time and we do it regularly and so we're you know everything is good between us and God because you could show up to church every week listen to a sermon sing songs give in the offering even pray for people when you're with other people and then go throughout the rest of the week and not really have a relationship with God or have a relationship with God that's kind of like, yeah, when, when I trusted you, I needed your grace and I need your help and all of that. But now I'm mature. I don't really need all that beginner, basic, whatever kind of stuff that was way back here. And the problem with that is to the extent that we think walking the Christian life is different from beginning in the Christian life. God did everything to save me. But now he's given me everything I need. I'm kind of on my own. We're going to measure our success and our failure 
relative to ourselves. I'm doing really well. On what, on what basis? Well, because I'm doing all the things that our other Christians around me are doing. I'm doing really badly. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm not doing all the things that other Christians around me are doing. When you came to the cross, you didn't say I could do or not do. You just, or you didn't say I could do blank and then God will accept me. You came to the cross and you said, there is nothing that I can do that will make me right before God. I need everything that God has done in my place. So then when we come to the, to the process of sanctification, yes, we have to obey all the commands that God has given us, right? But the only way that we have the power to obey all the commands that God has given us is if we keep coming back to God and we say, I don't have what I need, I need your grace. I don't have what I need, I need your grace. I sinned again, I need your forgiveness. I am called to do impossible tasks like love my husband or wife, be a good parent to my kids, meet the needs of the saints when I'm tired or I don't have money or whatever else. You called me to do all these things and I can't do them on, the, on my own. And so instead of trying to do them on my own and then patting myself on my back, or trying to do them on my own and failing and then saying, oh, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a failure in the Christian life. We have to keep going back to Jesus and keep going back to the cross and saying, I'm going to return to the Lord, my God. So the question that I think I would want to wrap up with with this is, when you and I repent to find God's mercy... Is it because we want to deal with blemishes in our reputation so that other Christians think well of us? Or is it because we are wholeheartedly turning back to the God who saves us, the God who sustains us in our Christian walk, the God who's going to safely bring us home? Because I think it's easy for us to have the motivation to repent so that other people will think well of us. To repent because we're afraid if I don't repent, then, then maybe God doesn't accept me anymore. But the reality is, if, if God gave you grace at the point of salvation, and God's still the same God who did it at that moment, then if you come to him here along the way, he will give you grace again and forgiveness and help and all of those sorts of things. Philippians 1.6 says it's God who began the good work in you and he will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So often when it comes to the issue of faith and repentance, when it comes to the walking the Christian life, we're like it's God who began a good work in us and God who's going to finish it and I'm doing everything in between. We can go to extremes, right? The one extreme is I earn my way to God, so I work really hard and then I get really frustrated. The other is, God does it all and I just sort of sit here and relax and that tends to laziness. Self-reliance and laziness are easy extremes to go to. Holding the proper biblical tension, like it says in Philippians 2, where it says, Jesus humbled himself, came as a servant, and fulfilled God's purpose... Now he calls you to work out your salvation in fear and trembling 
because God is at work in you, here's all the things God's called me to do, none of which I can do on my own. But I say, God, with your help, I will do them. But it's God's grace and power and strength and help sustaining me all the way. Why did Israel finally repent? Because God did a work in them. When and how will you and I find success in the Christian life? When God does a work in us. So from our perspective, we are obeying what God has said, but the reality is, God's the one who undergirds it all the way. Repent to find God's mercy. Realizing that even in those moments of repentance, there are tendencies toward pride and selfishness and even sin in moments when we're trying to repent. Repent to find God's mercy, not because it will fix some problem in our lives or make other people think well of us, but because we want God himself more than we want the sin that we've been loving up to that point. And repent to find God's mercy in the same way that you first turned to Jesus. I have nothing to offer you. I'm not going to have these successive stages of cleaning up my life, and then I can come to you. Here's how I am. I'm dirty with the grime of sin and this world, and I can't fix it on my own. I need your help. And when we come to God with humble repentance, we will find his mercy. Let's pray. Father, there are so many ways that I think it's easy for us to go astray in the way that we think about this or the way that we respond to a passage like this. We hear a word like repent and we start thinking of you as a God who is vindictive and malicious. We've got a kind of Deal with our sin quickly before you notice and, and we're in huge trouble. We hear repent. And we say, well, but I really, really enjoy this sin. And if I really and truly repent, I'm going to have to give it up. So we go through the motions of repentance, but we don't actually mean it. You're calling us not to a self-righteousness that says, a vindictive God will be pleased by outward actions and not to a love for sin that says, I can do whatever I want and I'll repent later. But a repentance that has urgency because we have a relationship with you, but also humility because we know that it's not something we can fix on our own. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a proper repentance and in that proper repentance find your mercy. Lord, I pray that we don't have to walk the path that Israel did, decades, even generations of exile and difficulty, long stretches of devotion to idols and just the the waste of resources, the using up of life and time that cannot be 
gained back. But wherever we are, Lord, we have in every moment a call to repent. Be 75 and have a month left to live, and we repent, and that month is not a waste because we finally came to you. But we could be 10 or 12 or 25 and realize that we need to repent and have our whole lives ahead of us. And we don't always understand why one person's life looks one way and another person's looks a different way. And in the end, I don't think that you want us to worry too much about where other people are at other than to pray for them and ask for you to work in their lives, but instead to say, all right, here's where I'm at. How am I going to respond to the call to repent? Am I going to finally actually do it? Or am I going to keep putting it off because I think it's too hard? Or... It's failed this many times before. Or other reasons that we invent in our minds that that keep us from turning to you the way that we're supposed to. Father, please help us to repent, to find your mercy. Help us to understand what that looks like. If we don't understand what it looks like, help us to keep exploring it more and more until we know what it means to walk with you and to keep turning back to you when we've turned away and to call other people to come to you. Because all of this turning is not something that you need to do. You are stable. You are faithful. You are constant. The motion doesn't need to be from you to us, although in your grace you bend low and you reach out and you call out. The motion needs to be from us to you. So by your grace, bring us to yourself, we pray. Amen.